Hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us. Besides you guys here at North Garnett, we have family all over the 918 and across the country are worshiping with us as well online. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome in our online family today. And we are in week three of a series that we're calling Running on Full. Because let's face it, let's be honest, all of us are guilty of running on empty at times, especially during the season we're in right now. In fact, somebody sent me this picture just the other day because the series we're in. And I think that describes a whole lot of us. We're just trying to stretch ourselves as far as we possibly can, to go as far as we can, even though we're running on empty. But just like a car that runs on gas, if your tank is empty, you're not going to get very far. And Jesus knows this. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, Jesus doesn't want us running on empty. He doesn't want us running on fumes. He doesn't want us living a half-life or an incomplete or partial life. He wants us living a full life because that's the life that God created us and designed us to live. And he shows us how to live life on full. And that's why in this series we've been saying over and over again, that Jesus came so we could live healthy, engaged, authentic, and fully charged lives. And I wonder, as you look at that description of the type of life that Jesus wants us to live, does that describe you? Or would you say you're someone who typically runs on empty? That's why in this series, we are checking the gauges and the dials of our hearts and our souls to make sure that we are living the life that Jesus died for us to live, that we are truly living on full because we can't in him. And so in this series, we're looking at different words that have a tendency or the ability to rob us of life. And at week one of the series, we looked at the word pace because when you live at an unhealthy pace, that can rob you of life. And so if you're not getting the rest that you need, or if you're not running in the type of all right, if you're not running the pace that Jesus wants you to run, then that can quickly deplete you of life. And last Sunday, we looked at the word people, because people definitely have a tendency to rob us of life, especially those people who are constantly negative, or they're spiritually unhealthy, or spiritually immature. They can rob us of life. Not all people, but some people definitely can. But today, we're going to look at another word, and we're going to look at the word pressure, because we all face pressure in life, and pressure definitely has the ability to deplete us to drain us of life. Now, when I use the word pressure, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about stress, anxiety, or weight that builds up over time. See, this world that we live in constantly wants to pressure us to conform to its standards, to be like it, to live like everyone else, to live out the cookie-cutter existence that has been passed down to us. This world wants to pressure us to live life as it defines it. And when we try to live a different type of life, it presses in against us. And sometimes the stress and the anxiety and the weight that we experience because we don't want to conform to the pressures of this world, sometimes those things can really get us down. And that can happen to the best of us. It even happened to the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says in the book of 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. Paul writes, we, he's speaking of himself and his ministry companions. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Let me ask, you ever been there? You ever experienced so much pressure? that you didn't want to get out of bed in the morning? You ever experienced so much pressure that maybe the opposite happens, you can't sleep at night? 
because you've got all this stress, all this anxiety, all this weight that you're dealing with, so much so that you can't even fall asleep. I was reading a study the other day by Consumer Reports that stated that 68% of Americans struggle with sleep. 68% of Americans struggle falling asleep. That means that between you and the two people sitting beside you, if you're sitting beside anybody, only one of you sleeps well. (laughs) The other two struggle with sleep. And that lets me know a couple things. First, it lets me know that we as Americans deal with a lot of anxiety and stress, don't we? But it also lets me know something else. I'm not alone. See, pressure has a tendency to make us think we're all alone. That we're the only ones experiencing it. We're the only ones dealing with it. We're the only ones that have to face what we're facing. But we're not alone. In fact, even godly men like the Apostle Paul experienced such pressure that he despaired of even life. Look at what he says, 2 Corinthians 1.8. He said that this pressure was far beyond our ability to endure. In other words, I couldn't handle it on my own. I couldn't deal with it on my own. But when you read the rest of the book of 2 Corinthians, you find out that Paul didn't despair of life. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He kept on going. He pressed on, and God used him in phenomenal ways. In fact, we see that Paul was even, he suffered, or he faced death on multiple different occasions. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. He writes about how he went without food and clothing and the basic needs of life, how he lost friendships and relationships because he lived for Jesus, and yet he kept going, and he continued to serve with joy. Why? How? Look at what he says in the very next verse. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, the reason why Paul was able to keep going even though he faced death over and over and over again, even though he faced pressure over and over again, is because he kept looking at the empty tomb When his life felt empty, he looked to the empty tomb, and the empty tomb filled him up because he knew no matter what he faced, he served a God who had the power over life and death. He served a God who was greater than any obstacle that was put before him. He served a God who literally defeated the grave, and because the tomb was empty, he could now be full, and he could live a full life. See, because of the resurrection of the dead... Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul kept going. It was the basis for his life. It was the motivation for his ministry. It was the foundation of his very existence. And the reason why we can keep going is because Jesus is alive. We can keep going because the resurrection is true. We can press on in the midst of pressure, in the midst of stress, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of even carrying weight, we can press on because of the resurrection of the dead. Because the tomb is empty, we can now live a full life. And so we can turn to Jesus' words and John, and listen to what Jesus says in John 16 33. He says, in this world you will have trouble. In other words, Jesus doesn't hide the fact that we're going to have trouble or stress or anxiety or pressure. He doesn't try to sugarcoat things. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but you don't have to be discouraged. You don't have to give up. You don't have to throw in the towel. You don't have to quit. You can have courage. You can take heart because, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. 
I've defeated the greatest enemy, death. I've defeated the curse of sin, and you can be victorious with me. And I think the reason why Jesus says these words is one, to encourage us, but also so that we can prepare ourselves. Because like I said, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything. He says, in this world you have trouble. If you ever hear a preacher say, when you follow Jesus, you won't have any more trouble. Well, that preacher doesn't know Jesus, okay? Because listen to what Jesus says here. In this world you will have trouble. But that trouble doesn't have to get you down. It doesn't have to deplete you of life. You can still live a full life in him. What Jesus is trying to do here is prepare us for when we face pressure so that we can press on in the midst of it, even have joy in the midst of it. And Scripture repeatedly teaches us that. It repeatedly teaches us that if we'll learn to lean on God now, if we'll learn to lean on God now, he will help us stand up to pressure later. I mean, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Peter says that we have an enemy, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, at first glance, when you read those words, you might think, well, that's kind of scary. We've got an enemy, the devil, who's prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour us, destroy us. That's kind of scary. But I don't think Peter wrote those words just to scare us. I think actually he wrote those words to encourage us Jump back and look at what he says before this statement. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because you have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Then he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Yeah, we have an enemy who's powerful. We have an enemy who's cunning and shrewd and crafty. We have an enemy who's very deceitful and tricky but he's not unstoppable. He can be resisted. We can stand up against him when we stand up in our faith. And that's why Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. In other words, prepare yourself because trouble is coming, Satan is going to attack, but you can resist him. He doesn't have to get the best of you if you are prepared to face him. And what I've learned over time in my life is this truth, this principle. Regular spiritual discipline shapes our faith when life gets hard. When we are regularly growing in our faith, we are maturing in our faith, learning to depend more on God and not on ourselves, when we are practicing spiritual discipline so that we are entering into a deeper and deeper relationship with our Lord, we're able to face pressure and press on in the midst of it, and even have joy as we endure it. You see, if you're just coasting through life spiritually right now, yeah, I go to church every now and then, and I pray every now and then before a meal, or, you know, I every now and then will pull up my Bible and read it like Christmas time, I'll always read the Christmas story or whatever, you know. If you're just kind of coasting through life spiritually, and you still believe in God, but your faith isn't growing, you're not developing, and you're not entering into a deeper relationship with Jesus, you're not massaging your faith so that it becomes stronger all the time. If you're not preparing yourself now, then when pressure comes, it could be disastrous. Let me illustrate it like this. We were in this series, you know, running on fulls. So we're talking about cars and how cars have to have a full tank of gas, you know, have to have gas to run, all that kind of stuff. But here's the thing. In order for cars to run at full capacity, 
you don't just need gas, you also need to do other things as well. Cars need routine maintenance, right? So you need to get regular oil changes. You can only go so long without an oil change before your car isn't going to operate anymore. Eventually it will stop working if you don't get an oil change, right? And you need to rotate the tires and make sure they're balanced, all that good stuff. Eventually you're going to need new tires if you want your car to keep running and not endanger those who are in it. You know, you have to make sure you do regular things so that your car can run at full capacity. And the other day I got in my vehicle, got in my car, and I turned it on, and when I did, a light came on my dashboard. It wasn't my gas light. I talked about that last week. It was a different light. It was this one right here. Anybody know what this light means? Tire pressure, right? Low tire pressure means one or more of your tires is low on air. So I did what I always do anytime one of these lights pop on my dashboard and come on my dashboard. I took it to the shop because I know nothing about cars whatsoever. So I took it to the shop and I was like, hey, I know it's the tire pressure light. Can you check out my tires? So the guy did. Same guy I go to all the time. Real nice guy. I trust him. And so he says, all of your tires are a little low actually. So he filled them up with air. And then he looked at me and he goes, Chad, did you know that you need new tires? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. I need new tires. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that a while back. And honestly, I really did. Like, I noticed that the tread on my tires were getting pretty bad. I noticed that like four or five months ago. And so I knew I probably should do something. But I was putting it off because that's a lot of money, you know, whatever. And so I told him, I said, yeah, I noticed that a while back, but really haven't done anything about it. He said, well, you need new tires. I was like, oh, okay. Well, can you rotate them first? He's like, no, 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 no. You're beyond rotating. Like, you need new tires in the next week or two. And I was like, really? It's that bad? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm worried about your family right now. You need to make sure that you get new tires. And so I did. Like, the next day or so, I went and got new tires. And after I was finished getting them, he looked at me and he said, you know, I kept looking at those car seats in the back of your car, your two little ones. And I kept thinking, I need to convince him to get new tires because I don't want for him to endanger his life or the life of his kids, life of his family. You guys know this. If you have tires on your vehicle that have terrible poor tread, that are bald, you can drive for a while on a tire like this. And you might run into some dangerous situations, like if it's raining and the roads are slick, you might have trouble stopping. You may even have trouble stopping on a good day, depending on how bad your tires are, right? So you might run into some dangerous circumstances if you have tires that look like this, that are worn, that have very little tread. But over time, if you keep running on tires like this, this is what could happen and probably will happen. You might have a blowout. And it's not just that you will find yourself in a dangerous situation, you might endanger the lives of others around you who are innocent as well. And this may be a crude illustration, but this is kind of like how our spiritual lives work. We've got to continue to take care of our spiritual lives. We've got to do, for lack of a better way of putting it, routine maintenance on our spiritual lives to make sure that we are as healthy as we need to be. And if we are not maturing in our faith, if we're not growing in our faith, if we're not moving forward in our faith and making sure that we are healthy in our relationship with God, we might find ourselves in a really dangerous situation, especially when Satan attacks, especially, especially when we face pressure. But here's the thing, like I said, regular spiritual discipline shapes our faith when life gets hard so that we're ready to face whatever obstacle is thrown in our path, whatever pressure we find ourselves up against. And there's a great example of this from the Old Testament. 
And it comes from a guy named Daniel. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me the book of Daniel. It's found towards the end of your Old Testament, one of the major prophets. And that's where we're going to be today as we look at the example of Daniel. And Daniel is, lo- is known for the lion's den situation, right? We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But before we do, let me give you a little bit of context as you turn to the book of Daniel. See, Daniel was one of the bright and talented Jewish leaders that lived in Jerusalem about 600 years prior to the time of Jesus. But but the Jewish people were not following God like they were supposed to, so God allowed a foreign army, the Babylonians, to come in and take over Jerusalem, take over the kingdom of Judah. And when they did, Daniel, as well as other talented guys like him, were taken back to Babylon so that they could serve in the king's court there. They wanted the most sophisticated, intelligent, talented, gifted, skilled guys to serve in their kingdom back home. And so Daniel was taken as a captive to a foreign land. And Daniel served in captivity for 70 years. He served under three different kings. But here's the interesting thing. Daniel was so talented and gifted and so faithful in the the tasks that were assigned to him, He ended up rising in the ranks. He ended up becoming a prominent figure in a foreign land. And under one king, King Darius, who's actually king of the Persians, under King Darius, Daniel ends up being promoted to second in command of the entire kingdom. Look at what it says here in the book of Daniel. It says in Daniel 6, verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king, King Darius, planned to set him over the whole kingdom. In other words, King Darius wanted to make Daniel prime minister of the land. Darius was still going to be king, but Daniel was actually going to be the one leading. He was going to be the prime minister, second in command in the entire kingdom. That's a pretty big honor. That's a huge deal. But here's the thing. That made the other officials, the other administrators in the king's court, jealous of Daniel. Because Daniel is a foreigner. And the king's going to let this foreigner lead the entire kingdom? They didn't like that at all. So these other administrators and officials, they decide to scheme against Daniel. And they want to try to catch him doing something wrong. So they, they catch him breaking the king's law and they could have him expelled from the kingdom or maybe executed. But they couldn't find him doing anything wrong. In fact, look at what Daniel goes on to say in verses 4 through 5 of chapter 6. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that reputation. I want to have the type of reputation where they can't accuse me of lacking integrity or character. They can't accuse me of being dishonest. They can't accuse me of not working hard or treating people well. The only accusation that people can make against me is that I am faithful to my God. If I die with that reputation, that's a full life right there. I want to be known as a man of integrity and character and honesty and faithfulness, someone who works hard and treats people right. And if the only accusation that anyone can ever make against me is that I was fanatical about my God, then so be it. I will have died living a full life. And that's Daniel. They can't make an accusation against him unless it has to do with his faith. And so that's what they do. They scheme against Daniel 
and they basically convinced the king to create a new law, issue a new decree that says, if anybody over the next 30 days prays to anyone other than you, O king, then that person is to be executed, thrown into a lion's den. And King Darius is an arrogant guy, and he's like, yeah, I want to test everybody's loyalty. That's a great idea. I'm going to issue this decree that no one can pray to anyone or any god besides me over the next 30 days for the next month. So he issues this decree, and the enemies of Daniel think we got him because they know Daniel publicly prays to God every single day. In fact, the Bible says he prays three times a day publicly to his God. He is not ashamed of his faith. And so Daniel is... Daniel's going to make a decision here. He's facing some pressure. Does he hide his faith? Does he run in this moment? Does he decide just to lay low? Does he say, well, for 30 days, I'll just pray silently and no one has to know about my faith in God? Or does he continue to do what he's been doing and worship his God faithfully? He's facing some real pressure, and the pressure that he's facing is death. And this is what Daniel decides to do. Look at verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, I want you to catch what happens here. In the midst of pressure, Daniel doesn't panic. In the midst of pressure... Daniel doesn't run. He doesn't say, I'm out. He doesn't hide. He doesn't get mad at God or try to get back at his enemies. He doesn't cave. Instead, did you catch what it says he does? He did just what he had done before. Because, you see, here's the thing. Daniel's faith in God, it wasn't a game that he played. It wasn't a hobby or a pastime. It wasn't just a family tradition that had been passed down to him. No, his faith was real. And this faith that he had been exercising and practicing for years, for decades, that faith was preparing him for now the pressure that he had to face. And so when he faced this pressure, nothing changed. He did what he had always did. His faith remained the same. And he turned back to his God. And the reason why Daniel was able to continue to practice his faith and walk into the lion's den with peace and confidence is because decades of spiritual discipline had shaped a faith that could not be shaken when life became difficult. And that's why I love the example of Daniel. Because Daniel teaches us He teaches us how to deal with pressure when pressure comes. And the way to deal with it is to be prepared for it. To lean on God now so you can stand up to pressure later. And a lot of times when we talk about Daniel and the lion's den, we emphasize how Daniel got out of the lion's den, and he did. God ended up rescuing Daniel. In fact, the Bible says that God shut the mouths of the lions so that Daniel wasn't harmed at all. And that's cool. And in our children's Sunday school classes and children's church times, that's what we've always celebrated in the past, that Daniel got out of the lion's den. But what I think is even cooler than that is that Daniel was willing to get in the lion's den. Because Daniel didn't know God was going to rescue him. But Daniel knew one thing. Nothing 
matter to him more than his relationship with God. See, here's the thing. Daniel knew what it meant to live a full life. And a full life was living in an intimate, personal relationship with the God who created him. And nothing else mattered but that. He was willing to lose his status, his position, his prestige. He was willing to lose his power, his authority. He was willing to lose his money, his wealth, his stuff, his possessions. He was willing to lose his relationships and his friendships. He was willing to even lose his very life, but he would not give up his relationship with God because in the end, his relationship with the God who created him, the God who loves him, was all that mattered to him. Living a full life is not having all the stuff that this world offers us. Living a full life is living with God. And Daniel was unwilling to give that up. The reason why Daniel was willing to go into the lion's den is because he was already living a full life and nothing that the king or anyone else did to him could rob him of the life that he had with his God. I like to put it this way, Daniel was all in for God before he ever faced the possibility of going in the lion's den. And if we want to face the lion's den of our lives, the pressure that we're gonna face, the chaos that we're gonna face, if we wanna face that with confidence and assurance and with joy, we've gotta decide right now whether or not we're all in for God. It's gotta be real now. We can't wait for pressure to come. We've got to decide now because that's how we're going to be prepared for it. And I think we can learn a whole lot from Daniel's example. And the first thing that we can learn from Daniel's example is this. We need to make sure that now we are seeing God clearly. Did you notice what the text said Daniel did? So that Daniel went up to his upstairs room where the windows faced Jerusalem and he prayed to God. Now, why did Daniel do that? We know God hears us anywhere, right? And Daniel could have even publicly prayed from anywhere. He could have prayed on the street corner. He could have prayed in the, you know, castle cafeteria with all the other officials that were in there eating lunch or whatever. But no, what does he do? He goes to the upstairs room of his house and he opens the window towards Jerusalem and he prays to his God there. Why? Because I believe Daniel was eliminating all distractions. He wanted to really focus on God. He wanted to be alone with God. He wanted to take time with God that was going to be uninterrupted. He got away from all the distractions around him, and he looked towards Jerusalem to focus in on his God. He wanted to see God clearly. And I think if we want to survive whatever pressure we're going to face, we've got to be a people who see God clearly. Because here's the thing. God is going to ask his people to do some tough stuff, and the only ones who can do the tough stuff that God is asking us to do are those who see him clearly. One of my favorite books of the Bible to read from when it comes to devotional reading is the book of Revelation. Those of you guys who know me know that's true. And that may seem shocking to you because a lot of people are like scared of the book of Revelation. They don't want to read it. They don't understand it. I love to read from it. In fact, I think Revelation is the most encouraging book in all the Bible, honestly. And I'll tell you why later. One day I'll preach a series of Revelation. Not today. But I love the book of Revelation. And one of my favorite parts in the entire book is the opening section. John, the apostle, is writing to seven literal churches in that day who were suffering, who were experiencing a whole lot of pressure, persecution because of their faith. 
And Jesus says, I want you to write something to these churches. And I'm sure these churches were hoping that the message they were going to get from Jesus was going to be, I'm going to take away all your suffering. I'm going to take away all the persecution. I'm going to take away all the pressure you're facing right now. But that's not what Jesus does. You know what Jesus does? He reveals himself in a powerful, cosmic way to John as one who holds the cosmos, the universe, in his hands, as one who speaks in Niagara thunder, as one who shines like the sun with supernova brilliance. He reveals himself in an all-powerful way as the alpha and the omega. Why? Why does Jesus want for these churches to see him in this light? Because Jesus was going to ask those churches to do some tough stuff. Their mission wasn't finished yet, and the only ones who can do the tough stuff that God is asking them to do are those who see God clearly for who he really is. See, Daniel saw God clearly before he ever had to face the lion's den, and that's why he knew his God was greater. But something else we can learn from Daniel's example is this. We need to make God part of our regular rhythm in life. Did you notice that the text says that Daniel three times a day took time to be with God. He had regular set times to be with God. And I believe we need to do the same because if we don't make time for God, we won't have time with God because we're busy people, aren't we? The same is true when it comes to my wife and kids. If I don't make time for Allison, my day will go by quickly and I will not spend the quality time with her that I need to. Same thing with my kids. The other day, I got home from the office and Alex, my son, asked me if I would go throw a football with him. I was like, sure, buddy, but we had to eat dinner first and then I had to send out an email. I got a phone call and we just got busy and pretty soon we're giving our kids baths and I lay Alex down for bed and he looks at me as his head hits the pillow and he says, Daddy, we never played football and you promised. And he was right. Because isn't that how life works? If we don't make time for the people we love, we won't have time with them. And the same is true for God. If you just give God your leftover time, you'll never have time for him. So I challenge you, have intentional times with God. And I'm not saying you gotta do it three times a day like Daniel. Maybe it's just one time a day. Maybe it's just a few minutes a day. But make time with God so that you can continue to grow in your relationship with him. But Daniel also teaches us that we need to humble ourselves before God. Do you notice when the text says that Daniel got on his knees before God? That was a posture of worship. Daniel was saying, God, you are God and I am not. And then it says when the officials found Daniel that he was calling on God for help. Daniel knew who was in charge, and it wasn't him. He was humbling himself before God. He was saying, God, whatever you want from me, I'm going to do. You know, we say that a lot, don't we? We sing songs that have that message in it, and we say that when we're among our church family. We say, yeah, whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do. Until God asks us to do something that we don't want to do. And then it's like, oh, hang on a second. I think maybe you misunderstood me, God, or maybe I misunderstood you or whatever. I always think of a passage from the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah takes place prior to Jerusalem falling, or as it's falling, you might say. And so as Jerusalem is falling, there's still people, Jewish people living there, and they go to the prophet Jeremiah and they say this. They say, pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. And isn't that a great prayer? Pray to God and ask him where we should go and what we should do. That would be a great verse if the people actually did that. But when you read the rest of the story, the people get the message back from the prophet Jeremiah of what God wanted them to do and where he wanted them to go, and they don't do it because they say, that's not what we wanted. And the people end up being destroyed later on. See, sometimes we say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as it fits within my comfort zone. As long as it's what I want to do and where I want to go. 
And we end up crashing and burning, and then we wonder why. There's one more thing I think we can learn from Daniel's example, and it's this. We need to let God shape our perspective. So did you notice something? It says that when Daniel went to pray three times a day, he gave thanks to his God. And this was something he had been doing for 70 years as a captive in a foreign land. He regularly gave thanks to God. Now, I want you to imagine this for a second. Daniel is living as a stranger in a foreign land. He's been removed from his family, from his friends, from everything that he knows. He's living among pagan people. He's serving a pagan king. And yet he continues to give God thanks. Why? Because he knew he still had reason to be thankful. I was having a Zoom call the other day with some preachers, and one of my favorite preachers, Rick Ashley, was on there, and I listened to him say that during this pandemic, he has made a list every single morning of things to be thankful for, because it's easy to go negative right now, and every single morning when he wakes up, he makes a list of things he has to be thankful for, and then he prays thanksgiving to God through that list, and he said it has changed his entire perspective, because he knows that no matter what's going on around him, he always has reason to be thankful. And the same is true for us. No matter what you're experiencing right now, no matter what you're going through right now, you have something, maybe multiple things to be thankful for. And we just need to make sure that we're focusing on that stuff because God continues to work in our lives and bless us. We just need to stop and pay attention to what he's doing. And here's the thing. Even if everything in this life is taken away from us, the fact that I am still a child of God, the fact that he loves me when I don't deserve it, the fact that my reward is in heaven, the fact that I am living in God's grace right now and God calls me his own, I have reason to be thankful. Even if everything else is taken away from me. You've probably heard me use this equation before. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And this is so true. Because as long as you have Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you have. As long as you have Jesus, you have everything. But here's the thing. This formula can also be mixed up. If you have everything but you don't have Jesus, then you end up with nothing. Everything minus Jesus equals nothing. But I want to live a Jesus plus nothing kind of life. To where I may lose all my physical possessions. I may lose my status and prestige. I may even have friends walk away from me. But that doesn't matter. As long as I have Jesus, he is enough. And I have reason for joy. You've probably heard me tell this story before, but when I... First started to learn to preach. I wanted opportunities to preach. By the way, this past week, I celebrated 18 years in preaching ministry in the local church. And that, oh, okay, you don't have to, you don't have to applaud for that. Let me get a drink here. Uh, I didn't mean for you to applaud for that, but I just meant to say that because I'm getting old. And somebody said this week, they asked me about my gray hair. I was like, that's 18 years in preaching ministry right there. That's, that's how that came about. It's not kids or anything else. It's preaching ministry. But anyway. I love what I do, but before I actually started preaching in a local church, 
I, um, I wanted some experience, and so there was a local nursing home that had a service every single Sunday, and they asked different preachers in the area to come and preach for it. So I found that about, and I volunteered. I wanted to go preach. I wanted every opportunity I could to preach, and so I went to this nursing home uh, to preach, and my first Sunday there, I didn't realize that you didn't just come in and preach. You also did everything else, like you led the singing, you did the prayers, you served communion, you did everything. It was kind of like a one-man show, and so I got to experience that, and it was a lot of fun. But I remember when I was serving communion the first time, I came up to this gentleman who was confined to a wheelchair. He was immobile. He couldn't move his legs, couldn't move his arms. He'd been injured years ago. And at some point, he'd even lost his vision, so he couldn't see. And so I walked up to him, and I thought, how am I going to serve this man communion? And I guess he heard me coming. And he looked up at me as if he could see me. And he said, son, I'm just going to open my mouth and you put the bread and the juice in my mouth. I was like, I can do that. So he opened up his mouth real wide, put the bread on his tongue, poured the juice in his mouth. And after he took the Lord's Supper, there was this moment of pause, of silence, and I just kind of stood there looking at him like I couldn't believe what I'd just seen. And then in this moment of silence, he shouted out loud, hallelujah! Hallelujah. Some of you guys know the word hallelujah means God be praised. And I remember as a young man just learning to preach, I looked at that gentleman confined to a wheelchair. And I thought most people would look at that man and say, he doesn't have a whole lot to live for. I mean, he can't move his arms or legs. He can't see. He's in a nursing home. Best years of his life are behind him. Some people would say that. And I remember looking at that man and seeing a man confined to a wheelchair who was as free as a bird because his hope was in Jesus. He could say with total confidence and peace and assurance, hallelujah, our God is worthy of praise because for him, Jesus was enough. And I want to live that type of life. I want to live the type of life like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Where even when we have negative days and negative thoughts come along, we take those thoughts captive and we remember who we're living for, that we live for something greater than just what we see around us. So how does the story of Daniel and the lion's den end? Well, Daniel makes it out of the lion's den because God provides for him. And the king notices, how could you not? And then the king issues a new decree. Listen to the king's decree. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Did you catch what just happened? This entire kingdom, this pagan nation, Here's about the God of Daniel. Why? Because Daniel didn't cave under pressure. He didn't panic in the midst of pressure. He didn't run, but instead he did what he had always done. He placed his faith in God. And when you lean on God in the midst of pressure, people notice. And the entire kingdom heard about the God of Daniel. And I believe that's what God is calling us to do today as well. Because we're facing a whole lot of pressure today. 
But it doesn't matter if you're an elderly man confined to a wheelchair or Daniel facing the lion's den or living in Owasso, Oklahoma, or wherever you are right now. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be a person who shouts out, Hallelujah! Because when you do, people will notice. Remember the example of Daniel. Decades of spiritual discipline had shaped a faith that could not be shaken when life became difficult. Let's have that type of faith. Let's have a faith that in the midst of the lion's den shouts out hallelujah. We're going to end today with the Lord's Supper. And so if you're at home, if you want to go in and get your elements together, if you're here in person in just a second, you're going to be dismissed by a row. If our ushers want to go in and get in place, they can do that. But we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I want to end with the Lord's Supper today because I want to end remembering our God who defeated death, our God who loves us, our God who is on our side, our God who is bigger than any pressure we have to face, our God who is worthy of praise. And so today as you take the Lord's Supper with our church family, I pray that no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing right now, as you take the Lord's Supper and you remember that you are loved by our God, that he has a place for you in his family, that he has a purpose for you in this life, and that he, he calls you his own. As you remember our God in this moment and what he has done for you, remember you have reason to be thankful. And I hope that as you take of the bread and the cup today, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus, that you'll give a shout of hallelujah. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to open up your word and study it. And we just pray that we can have faith like Daniel that doesn't cave under pressure, but that presses on as we look to you because the tomb is empty. We can live a full life. May we look to the empty tomb for our strength, for our encouragement, for our purpose every single day. But especially in this moment as we remember the body and the blood of our Lord. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen.